Welcome to the Connectomics podcast. Here we talk to theorists and practitioners about how notions of embodiment can help us to connect an understanding of ourselves with an understanding of the cultural, technological and ecological worlds of which we are part. I'm your host, Mark Michael James. I'm a cognitive scientist and philosopher at the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in beautiful Okinawa, Japan. Please join me to connect with our guest for today in just a moment. On the podcast this month, I have Marek McGann. Marek is a professor of psychology from Mary Immaculate College in Limerick. Uh, Marek is someone who I've been attuned to for a long time, um, largely because he is Irish and there isn't too many of us theorizing around these ideas in Ireland, but also because within the space of an act of theorizing and so on, Marek's writing often stood out for me as very clear. I, I often find, and I've heard others comment on, on it, in fact, we had some of Marek's writings to read as part of our course here in OIST recently as part of an intro to embodied cognitive science course. And the students also commented that they had come across these ideas before, but actually the style and flair that Marek presented them with assisted in their comprehending these ideas. And I think this clarity and this style and this flair holds in his conversation too. And Marek, I think, brings a great honesty and humor and humility to his theorizing and his engagement with ideas and his engagement with others in the pursuit of those ideas. And it's a real pleasure to be around. And I've listened back to this podcast and found it very pleasurable to also listen to. Uh, so hopefully you find the same. We talk about a lot of things in this podcast. We talk about mediation, about behavior settings. We talk about scalability and agency. We talk about design, emergentism. Uh, we talk about a lot of things. And what I've found since having had this conversation, maybe more than any of the others that I had previously or that I have also recorded, was that I found Marek's ideas showing up for me again more often or being useful more often than I've had with previous conversations. And I think that is indicative of what I said before, both the clarity with which they're presented, but also the style and flair, but also they're just good ideas and uh, sensible and you know they seem uh, for me at least they kind of they land well and they sit with me well and I'd be interested to hear obviously your thoughts and your comments and your feedback and if you resonate with what I've been saying there without further ado 
I bring to you a conversation I had sometime around the end of February 2022 with Merrick McGann. Hello, Merrick. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to have you on. Uh, we've met, obviously, on many occasions in the past uh, in person, but I think we've met generally around um, a team, if you will. And I thought it might be an interesting way to get into this because you, I think maybe more than anyone to me, <laughs> kind of embodied this team. Um, and maybe you're wondering what's that theme, <laughs> but maybe things are coming to mind. I'm getting very nervous now. So. <laughs> so the theme for me is really this intersection between an action and ecological psychology. Um, you obviously host the Enso seminars series, which is maybe the you know primary place online for people who want to talk about these. Uh, these frameworks and the intersection between them in public. And you've hosted conferences. Uh, you've also um, very recently been an editor on this Frontiers issue. We was looking at the convergences and complementarities, com complementarities between those two frameworks. I'm wondering if we can get into your history a little bit uh, and maybe you can talk about because we've talked a bit about on this podcast an action, right? We had Tom Froze on here. We had Fred Cummins, all of, the, all of those people well-versed in that framework and willing to share what they know on the podcast. But we haven't had anyone talk at any real length about eco ecological psychology. And this may be an awkward question, and you can take it how you like, but can you talk to us about your history and then intersect that with a little bit with ecological psychology and maybe eventually we come back to how the two and action and ecological psychology come together for you. Sure. Okay. So I'll, I'll give it a go. The, I guess um, it's interesting that you um, see that as the, as a principal theme and I, I can certainly understand why it is something that I have cared about and that I have worked on for, a little bit for some time. But I guess I would have always seen myself as a tourist in ecological psychology. My background, I kind of started off in UCD in your own alma mater, and I, I did psychology there. But I immediately went on to do philosophical psychology as a master's, which would have been unusual enough, I think mm. probably still is unusual enough. Uh, where where was time. that? That was in UCD as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That was uh, a direct. And then the the MSc in cognitive science was just getting kicked off in UCD at the time as well. So uh, it was actually, uh, I was killing time in what I was intending to travel to the United States to conduct a PhD there, but I had mm -hmm. a, a year to kill. So I did the MSc in UCD in cognitive science. And that's where I got properly introduced to the notion of embodiment and to the changes around embodied science that were happening around the time. So to mm. give you, uh, I guess, a landmark, the Origen and Noe paper on sensory motor contingencies of visual perception was in, in essentially in preprint at the stage that I was doing that master's. Right. And it became one of the really kind of key focuses of a lot of discussion during that year. 
And it, I had been sort of teed up for embodied thinking by some of the things I'd done in the, the research masters previously, which was looking at how conceptions of the dynamic unconscious from psychoanalysis and and other thinkers. There's a, a French guy called Pierre Chianet, who was a contemporary of Freud, who had a somewhat different perspective on the unconscious. I was looking to see how that could be incorporated into, okay, uh, or was it compatible with Dennett's right. theory of consciousness, which again was kind of big at the time. And notions of embodiment and, or, or more kind of, the term embodiment wouldn't have been used too much, but the the ways in which emotion and visceral aspects of cognition formed bedrocks or foundations for mm. more articulated cognition were kind of arose as themes there. And so I guess I was kind of, I felt kind of primed for the embodied cognition stuff that then came up in the MSC. And at that point, I basically threw aside the uh, US ambitions. Mm. Um, and went to do my DPhil a couple of years later in the University of Sussex and the um, COGS there, the, the School of Cognitive Science. So that's where uh, Ezekiel de Paolo was working at the time. Uh, Hannah Thierhardt was doing her PhD just a couple of years ahead of me. I would have been, you know, shared weekly uh, or fortnightly seminars with the, the I mean, there was a real kind of tight group of yeah, very yeah. active systemic right. cybernetic and active tom Fraser was there as well so um the, I mean, really the, people who went on to define the whole space of embodied cognitive science very much yeah yeah and and i so i was just lucky to be there at the time to be able to work with these people and and very much affected by them got on board with inactive thinking and the inactive approach generally and kind of pushed on from there really so kind of grew up as a as a native speaker of the inactive approach as it were but also i was always being paid by psychology departments right the only jobs i could get were teaching psychology in psychology right. departments right right and always had this kind of almost psychology guilt that yeah. i should be doing more experiments or i should okay. be doing something more concrete and specific right. and it's really hard to do experiments with the inactive approach uh, yes it, it requires yes. a different set of methods and right. i'm not good enough to develop those or i have you know i wasn't develop, able to develop those substantially by myself so i was constantly looking around to see well you know what should i be doing mm. and there i think there are a number of really good methods available now that have developed over the past 20 years uh, and but there are also sufficient resonances with things like ecological psychology which obviously mm. predate the inactive approach by quite a margin mm. that make me think that well look at the very least we should be learning from this work and we should be um guided by it and and uh, mm. Mm. you know using what is useful from it and so, but it wasn't until relatively late that I, I properly read Gibson. You know, I read a little bit of um, mm -hmm. bits and pieces here and there, but I wouldn't have sat down to read Gibson until relatively recently. Uh, but I would also have, from more or less when it was published, been impressed by and inspired by Tony Chimero's Radical Embodied Cognitive Science. And 
to my mind, he was one of the first to properly say, no, let's actually get these two groups of, or these two strands of thought together. Let's find some way to, to make them gel a little bit more. Okay, okay. So I didn't know that that's where first kind of really the intersection was attempted in some sort of robust fashion. Yeah, so it's, you know, um, Chimera is explicit about it in one of the chapters of Radical and Body Cognitive Science. And he, I mean, he's talked subsequently about how he wasn't intending to, to come up with another label. He was mm. just in, he was largely intending to be uh, provocative with the title to kind of say, you know, I right, think the, right. the term was initially used by Andy Clark in a response to, it might have even been to the Oregon Noe paper. And Clark was kind of making the point that, you know, to do a, a cognitive science that had no representation at all or didn't traffic in representations would be some kind of radical embodied cognitive science, not just a, a regularly embodied cognitive science. And um, I've seen, you know, been in conversations where um, Tony's saying, well, look, when I named the book that I was really just trying to point out that there's a whole bunch of people who already do that. Yeah. They, there is a lot of cognitive science being done that is radically embodied cognitive science. And uh, he was just trying to, to flag it more than anything else. But in doing so, he also highlighted what he thinks was missing from the ecological perspective. And that is that it doesn't have an account of agency or doesn't have a, what I think, again, I, I don't want to talk for him, but uh, I think he, you know he doesn't have what is an adequate or, or compelling account of agency, and the inactive approach is very much grounded in an account of agency that would seem to be compatible. So it's a matter of of seeing how these two things can be fit together. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to get to this much later in the conversation, but it seems that we're we're here already. Maybe we should just lean into it a little bit. Um, you said something. A few minutes ago about um, kind of the, the pragmatic reasons for it, looking to ecological psychology in the first place, right? Finding yourself mm-hmm. in psychology departments and uh, looking around and not finding within an action proper the tools and methods to be able to do the kinds of experiments and stuff you're expected to do. And looking to ecological psychology, do you still see the relationship on those terms, here's a science in the proper sense of the word, if you will, and here's an action and it's a kind of framing through which to understand the science or integrate the insights of the science, or has that evolved to the point now that the intersections are much deeper for you? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. Um, <laughs> the My appreciation for both approaches has deepened and to the extent that it has, I, my appreciation for their differences has also deepened. Mm. There, I think there is a, a middle ground. I think they both have something to learn from one another. And I guess if I say something like that, what it really means is I think they're both wrong and there's a better way that incorporates the insights from both. Mm. But my suspicion is also that the the way that I would frame that 
you know, improved understanding, which I'm still struggling towards, you know, it's still more intuition than it is anything else, mm. is the it, the it will be easier to bring inactive researchers there than it would be to bring ecolog ecological researchers there. Mm. In the sense that there are fundamentally different intuitions underlying the approaches by both communities. And the ecological, psychological community have a very strong tend to, again, I, I have to be careful with generalizations here, but there tends to be a strong realist intuition underpinning their motivation, or at least for, for some groups of mm. ecological psychologists, where mm. one of the, you know, the genuine benefits of an ecological approach to perception and to behavior in general is that it allows us to be proper realists, mm. concrete realists. The, I mean, the book, one of the, the anthologies of, there's a Gibson paper called Reasons for Realism, and there's an, a collection of ecological psychology papers with the, the same title. And the inactivists are not realists. Kind of mm. harder to put a label on what the inactive approach particularly entails. I have a tendency these days to refer to it as emergentist. Mm. But what it certainly isn't is this kind of realism that sees the environment as this fully formed, preformed circumstance in which the agent, you know, which the agent encounters and has to conform to. And the that is that's not a subtle difference between the two. That really is quite a fundamental difference between the two approaches, insofar as it's held by by any of the you know the, the researchers in them. And to that extent, the two approaches are, are simply compatible. If you take those as as two of your axioms, then you know unification is a non-starter. Mm. I think it will be. I'm, I guess I'm more convinced by or persuaded by the emergentist position. Mm. But the, yeah, it, it's, I think there's nevertheless still going to be fruitful conversations because there's still a lot, there's still so much in common in terms of acknowledgement of some kind of reciprocal relationship between the agent and their environment as it's described between the, and, and there's a huge amount that, the ecological approach gets right, I say, the, you know, using the word um, cagely, that um, is, again, useful in terms of concretizing and, to use a psychology word, operationalizing the interaction between the agent and the environment, you know, engaging with it in, in mm. precise and measurable terms. Yeah. It's the whole challenge you outline is something we face here too, right? The the unit, the ambition of the unit, the stated ambition of the unit, its whole reason for being set up is to consolidate something like an inactive cognitive science that is going to be satisfying to its critics in some fashion. And we're definitely encountering some of the challenges but this notion of emergentism, I, I'm going to ask you to maybe develop a little, develop it a little bit. But one idea we've been playing 
around with here, maybe it's quite similar, is the notion of participatory realism. It's really, I suppose, some attempt to acknowledge that the, which is present in the ecological position, that the environment drives adaptation, that there's something like structure there and needs to be there in order for us to um, be able to reduce, reproduce the kinds of habits and ways of being in the world that we have. Um, and if we, even if we can't get to the thing in itself and state something about it wholeheartedly, uh, there's some sort of acknowledgement there. And I don't think inaction has never, has ever denied that, but it's, it's a different kind of commitment to that and understanding that when you're trying to do a science, um, and does, does emergentism capture anything over and above that for you or what what is it and can you give us the kind of outline of what what you mean by that so the the phrase struck me when i was trying to defend a a reading of varela thompson and rush in it was actually and i hope you won't mind me um, you know, naming him, given that it was it was technically a, a paper review, so I had a, a I think a 2014 paper on uh, radical embodied intersubjectivity, and in it I was trying to. This was one of my first sort of explicit forays into that relationship between the inactive approach and the ecological approach, and one of the reviewers on the paper was Harry Heft, who. I mean, has been a massive influence on the way I, I do an awful lot and the way I think about a number of different things. But in his review, he noted that there was a, at one point, I can't remember the, the specific section of the paper, that he he referred to what he saw as a constructivist misstep. And that, to, that kind of put me in mind of a kind of he was as an ecological psychologist he was perceiving what i was describing as essentially some kind of constructivism you know which tantamount to cognitivism of, of, of some sort that you know the agent just constructs its environment and in my immediate sort of response to that was no that's you're missing the point there there's a there's a, clearly a miscommunication or a misperception here because the inactive approach does not uh, make the claim that the agent constructs its own environment, mm. but rather that the environment and the agent are, you know, this codependent arising. It, they um, they arise together. And so, in 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 trying to defend that section of the paper, I said, well, actually, the best way to think about it is as emergentist rather than constructivist, because it, when an emergentist, uh, as a again as a label that we might want to try to defend, or at least to help articulate what our point of view is in difference to or in separateness to constructivism versus realism is that it doesn't put the, the, the you know, there's no canonical version of anything, um, either the agent or the environment. It's that they arise together. And so you're not allowed, you know, you're not allowed to put a primacy of one over the other. So that's the, the kind of, where I, or that's when I started using the term. I can, you know, it's, I, I can so happen to remember the particular point that maybe go, no, that's the that's the word I'm going to use from now on. 
And certainly emergence has been one of the axioms of, or again, axioms is a strong word, one of the basic principles of, of the inactive approach. And it, it's some, in a few occasions, there's been a couple of places in Mind and Life and in, so Thompson's Mind and Life or in the, the 2010 paper by um, Di Paolo, uh, Diar and Rhoda in the, the anthology on inactive cognitive science where they list kind of five principles of the inactive approach and an emergent perspective is one of them. Mm. So that is, I guess, where the, the term is coming from. How it would fit with participatory realism, I guess they would be closely aligned. Uh, I, you know, we, I, we'd probably have to get into the nuts and bolts as to precisely what the the uh, you know how we'd articulate participatory realism. But I guess one of the things that I would bring to the fore here is that there, because I don't think there is or can be a canonical account of the agent in from an inactive perspective, there is always a kind of an indeterminacy and a, a, a kind of a, a room for negotiation which has to be acknowledged. And so by that, I mean, essentially, if we think about, right, the, the agent participating in its reality, we have to be able to say, well, this is the agent, but mm. the agent is a tangle of autonomous processes. So if we think of even just our, our own good selves, right, we have the central nervous system is an autonomous system, the immune system is an autonomous system, um, we're tangled up with digestion, with um, circulation and endocrine systems and so on. And all of that, of course, is politicized and wrapped in social and community practices and habits and behaviors and so on. So the we kind of like to draw this circle. But of course, what we really are is this knot of tangled processes, any one of which could be identified as a circle. And at any given time, we are taking a perspective of saying, right, well, this is the agency that I'm interested in examining, and it's it's this particular tangle. But there will always be loose ends that we haven't included in our description. And because there's no single canonical account of the agent, there can therefore be no single canonical account of the environment, and it, it has to be this ongoing negotiation of feeling our way forward in whatever task we're doing, you know, whether it be a scientific or a productive one. Perhaps the most explicit and best way, I think one of the, the my best improvements in the way I've thought about this in the past couple of years is reading Karen Barad's Meeting the Universe Halfway, which I cannot recommend enough. I It is, is a, a sort of a very detailed and clear and comprehensive working through of some of these, these kinds of implications. And Barad talks about making an agential cut. Given that the universe and the agent are essentially unified, then any measurement that we make basically makes a cut that says, this is the agent I'm talking about, and that agent encounters that universe. But at any given moment, that cut, that choice to look at that moment of agency, that which you know in physical terms is called the measurement, or the observation that is a a product of a whole host of different processes and 
at no point will it be a comprehensive account of the whole system in its entirety. And that kind of awareness of, or ref, kind of reflexive awareness of, well, when we're making an observation, we're, we're making, as they call it, uh, an agential cut, then that is a, I guess it's probably uh, a, a likely to be a, a, the best worked out account of participatory realism. But I'm not sure if Parade would use the phrase, and I don't know how comfortable they'd be with it. And but I, I it's I think it's it's very close to a description of the kind of emergentism that I want to talk about. But I'm not wedded to using that term. I'm quite happy to jettison it if people you know if, if we come around to talking about something else. But I don't think Barad would use the term emergentism either. Um, so Barad uses agential realism, which I mm. guess is you know is very close to participatory realism. Mm. Yeah, I'm tempted to go off off the beaten path here now because this is such an interesting conversation, um, and I think maybe I will. <laughs> I okay, I, I will. I will not promise to be any useful guide here. I am still very much a beginner when it comes to Barad's work and and everything around it. But yeah, as I say, I mean, it's it, it's been a promising one. I don't want to make Barad the focus as such. Maybe we can come back to her. I, I, I remember her notion of interaction was very influential to me, just as a kind of grounding notion to situate me in this understanding of the kind of ongoing flux that we're always, you know, involved in, right, not separate from. But I, I want to maybe come back to an action and the history of an action a little bit. I think the notion of emergentism is is built into the notion of an action, but you're just kind of making it explicit there. But if we go back as far as someone like Maturana, who obviously predates an action, an act of cognitive science and his notion of autopoiesis and then scaling up that notion to understand the activity of the nervous system and perception and how it's all self-referential and so on. Um, <clears throat> do you find your own position making explicit critiques of that and acknowledging limitations of that? And is that coming maybe from your understanding of emergentism and uh, ecological psychology and so on? Or do you find that it's already there somehow in that? Right. So Maturana will talk about we can do science, but it's ob we can talk about objectivity, but it's always a bracketed objectivity. It's always something that we've brought some set of assumptions to, I guess, like Barad is saying, right? And we're deciding where... The agential split is the we're deciding where to carve up the world. Um, so, do you see that um, that notion of emergentism already there all the way back to Maturana? And then, do you see this as a, a continuation of that project, or do you see something additional there? Because I, I I have a reflection on that, but I'd like to to hear what you say. Then I suspect you'll have more to say about this than I will. I there is. Not just to Maturana, but also to second-order cybernetics. I mean, the, just the notion that any observation is made by an observer, and that kind of re reflexive recognition means that, you know, that just dissolves the whole neutral, objective scientific enterprise and forces you into that immediate and unending negotiation, right? You cannot get out of that. 
all that you can do is to learn to work with it. But it's not necessarily, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be experienced as a loss or a a, a weakness or a limitation or, um, you know, an, an insurmountable challenge, but rather is a a means by which we can make sure that the conversation always continues. That there is always another thing that we can do to improve and um, make more precise our understandings of things. So it does mean that there will never be a a complete and comprehensive account of the universe. But did anyone really think that that's ever going to be? Is that going to be happening? The, I mean, you'd be surprised, but people do, right? Like these are conversations I have in Oist all the time with scientists here. Okay. Um, I mean, I know you kind of, but you, we see this kind of cyclical claim every 50 years that there's only 50 years left, left in physics, right? So, you know, everyone kind of says, oh, we'll be done. You know, we just have these last few yeah. things to figure out. Yeah. And, you know, that it's that the last, some of the last few things that we have to figure out are how human beings do physics. And as kind of Barada's pointed out, if human beings don't show up in your physics, then your physics is clearly wrong mm. because we're the only, you know, we're, we're pretty sure that there are um, human beings in the universe. So, hmm. and there's human beings engaged in the process of physics. So the, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are certainly those principles present in Matrana. I'm not sufficiently versed in Matrana's particular writings to kind of go into that, uh, to sort of the, the sort of great depth on it. And in particular, I think there's, um, there are various ways in which the term autopoiesis gets used, and sometimes it's very specific, and sometimes it's immensely expansive, and a lot of it comes down to just how um, uh, how open you want to be or how fluid you want to take the, the term to, to be. Yeah, you're inspiring other conversations that I'm now thinking of having with colleagues and so on. But <clears throat> So that's good, but the... So we get to an action, right? And um, for Varela and for people who have tried to develop Varela's thought since, let me let me step back a little bit. With autopoiesis, with the biochemical constitution of the body, you get the emerging sense of care. You get certain normative relationships between, uh, I guess, at that point, organism and environment. Um, and then in, in in the embodied mind and so on, we talk about the autonomy of the nervous system and there's some attempt to begin saying, well, it's not all autopoiesis, but as that develops, you get more and more sophisticated accounts of how those other, I guess, layers of concern and so on emerge. Um, I often wonder what the implications are of this for science so initially my feeling is right well our concerns are relative to our bodies now you can understand that broadly like embodiment meaning the identity and set of sets of habits that i have you know the body schema that i have that has emerged in some context but also maybe the kind of participatory frames that i would talk about where we build up habits together in relationship and you're acting or acted true by these frames and so on. And 
you know, there's this kind of inescapability of this, which is true, right? Like what you say, we end up having to work with it. <laughs> and so at some point I had kind of stopped there, right? I kind of given up on the scientific project, if you will, and became quite cynical and, you know, more and more interested in kind of standpoint epistemology and the inescapability of these kinds of frames and so on. And I'm wondering if it's a good place to stop, which is not to say none of that is not true, right? That there's mm. all sorts of animating, say, organizations that dispose you to the world and bias you to the world in ways that certain things stand out as relevant or important and et cetera, et cetera. But do we in science, and this is a question, right? This is not a commitment, but it's one I think worth exploring. Does science start to give us precisely the tools to work against some of that, right? Because we're now maybe optimizing for something over and above these commitments. And you know, we find some other commitment, right? I mean, some people say commitment to truth. and I'm not committed to the notion of a capital T truth in any sense. But the idea that through this practice of scientific inquiry, you know, we can work with all this other stuff and we can somehow begin to transcend it. And that's true even of some of those frames that we might hold dear, right? And some of that standpoint epistemics, if you will, like we we can in some way begin to transcend it. Yeah, I, I, I'm not pessimistic. I'm quite optimistic. And in fact, um, I don't know, joyous is probably the wrong word but you know i'm enthusiastic <laughs> the hands, the hands I'm, went up I'm, folks <laughs> yeah i'm enthusiastic about science but not the not the science of of the dead right not not the dead science i mean there's there's some so much in the philosophy of science around this and uh, i follow on twitter um bernard devizer and iris van roy and others who are working you know that they're working within psychology or behavioral science and challenging and trying to unpack a lot of these things as psychology goes through the much referred to replication crisis, which is uh, a problem of method and discipline that goes much deeper than this notion of replication, because it gets it starts to unpick mm. the issues of well, what constitutes valid, trustworthy knowledge mm. in our discipline. And it turns out psychology is you know it, it's it's like finding out the foundations of your home are riddled with um something mm. that's going to destroy the, the foundations <laughs> the so the the notion of of science i think is you know it, it's a it's a much more dynamic endeavor than it is frequently described certainly the idea that there is a single canonical way to do science mm. there is this is the good science uh, or this is the correct science, is one that I think that is very hard to see as tenable, despite the fact that I, I understand that there are a lot of scientists who do think of those terms. Yeah. I think there's quite enough philosophy of science now um, and really well worked through, well thought through arguments, uh, pointing out the inadequacy of that kind of perspective without therefore getting cynical about science though right so you read the philosophy of science and what you actually see is this process of and how we're going to describe it that really is it's 
you know, there's certainly no consensus on that. Again, I, uh, uh, an analogy that or a, a term I come back to a lot is Tim Ingold's wayfinding or wayfaring. Mm. That science is a particular way of wayfaring in, by our community in the world we live in in order to get the things done that we want to get done. And that's very, yeah, that's a very nice term for it. It's a thing. I mean, it's, it's a lovely term because it eschews the idea that there is a single canonical map that we have to fill in. Mm. And it, it makes any endeavor into something that is much more dynamic and interactive than it is um, a matter of simple cartography and, um, and the fixing of things. Mm. And the, so insofar as, you know, you can have a philosophy of science that motivates and drives this kind of wayfaring endeavor, then it's a, it's a very empowering, agentive notion of science, but without one that needs to be hegemonic, right? It's, it, it's one that doesn't need to say, we have found the truth of the capital T, now back off, it's a scientific fact. Hmm. And so I'm quite optimistic and, you know, we're now also seeing a proliferation of methods and it's, I mean, there have always been, as long as there have been people working in the, within the inactive approach, there have people doing good data collection. It just wasn't me. <laughs> you know, they, they, they're a group of um, people in the Centre at Compiègne um, with John Stewart and Olivia Gepin and Charlinet and, and others there who had from the start were kind of doing both psychological and anthropological uh, work, various kinds of interdisciplinary work. You look at the University of Amsterdam now, where you have kind of lots of work that's philosophical, but also ethnographic and ecologically psychological. Uh, so there, and I mean, lots of other centers as well. Um, and so there is, there are, and I think at the moment, again, more recently, we're seeing um, a number more papers coming out in using course of experience or course of action methodology, which involves a, both a kind of a mixture of micro, micro ethnographic and reflexive um, interview. And the, this whole range of new methods that are being de developed and deployed, I think are improving and increasing our understanding of both behavior and experience. Mm -hmm. And insofar as that's the case, I think it, uh, will continue to improve our understanding and our capacity to make sense of the world in lots of different ways, in ways that will be useful to us and will give us new ways of acting in the world too. Hmm. So do you f feel within that there should be at least uh, one one path is an integrative path, right? There should be at least some striving towards some sort of synoptic integration. Um, and, and I know you're talking across scientists and so on here, but part of the motivation for cognitive science at the outset was, can we take all this? Can we derive insights from these various disciplines? And can we f fashion it and bring together such that we can produce a coherent vocabulary that allows these disciplines to talk to each other because so so my feeling is and this is frustrations we come up against here in the unit and i should say 
the unit is very supportive and I love being at OIST. Um, but you do have people coming from different backgrounds and it produces some tensions. And one of the tensions is that there is a mode of doing science and doing cognitive science that is grounded in a deep tradition that according to itself is perfectly coherent and you know it just needs to resolve a few small issues and because of the integration that exists within that it can be dominant right there's strange analogies here between this kind of thing and political situations right where you have all these other very kind of interesting uh, pathfinding novel ways of doing things that are really beautiful and so on but lack the integration and then are diluted in this larger space and then what you end up with is uh, what you end up with is political standoffs in a, in a lot of situations where actually our attempts here in the unit to do something different um, rub some people up the wrong way right we've obviously got the support of Oist but uh, you definitely hear through the grapevine that um, some people aren't happy with these kind of radical shifts to do science. And to, the problem is, right, to get the money to do science in a way that's not yet so consolidated. I think, I think you might have hit the, head on, the nail on the head there. I mean, <laughs> to, to the large extent, <clears throat> now look, politi- I don't want to get talking politics as such, but to the large extent that you have these kinds of tensions is because there is a kind of a description of things in terms of some kind of zero-sum game that you know are your your gain is my loss and the world just doesn't work like that right that's mm. that's not how the certainly it's not how understanding of the world works my better understanding can improve your understanding and your better understanding can improve mine but of course insofar as it is the way that grant applications work then um, there are, you know, there's going to be, it's going to create tensions uh, along those lines. Particularly, I think, insofar as it's increasingly clear that what matters in terms of whether or not something gets a grant isn't necessarily whether it's really good science, but rather it fits with political and social trends and priorities. Right. And... So you see, like, everyone's complaining that the neuroscientists get all the money or everyone's complaining that, um, you know, the, some some other group are getting all the money, the, 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 the Bayesian computer modelers are getting all the money. And the, you know, in order to, to get the money then, in order to have a job, you've got to go go in those directions. Right. And that would work if the those priorities had been set in some kind of ideal and pristine manner by the existing research and findings but of course that's never the case mm-hmm. so what becomes a matter of you know in order to do well in getting grants or in order to get your perspective better funded and better prioritized by the institutions that drive and support the endeavors themselves you have to do a certain amount of advertising work. You have to do a certain of brand, you know, brand recognition work for your approach. I mean, there's a it's been a continuous question of well, if ecological psychology 
has been around for 40 years is amongst the most powerful and reliable psychological and behavioral science that exists, then why is it not standard mainstream undergraduate psychology? Why does it only occur in a few different places? Right, right. And of course, they've they've never written a textbook. Right. And they've never written, you know, there, there's there none of the these none of That's the researchers. That's hilarious, by the way. I didn't know that. That's it's yeah, like it. And there's been many attempts to do so, right? There was, I think, recently, you know, just a few years ago, a bunch of them got together and said, "Well, let's do this online. We'll do an open source <laughs> textbook." And yeah. you know, stuff was written and progress was made, but we're not there. And so there's it it's not been made accessible to the uninitiated and of course there is only one outcome from that which is it will always be underestimated particularly given how counterintuitive it is hmm. and so there is a an extent to which we need engagement at a a level with um with non-specialists you know we need to write cool interesting funny pop science books right not to I mean, and in, you know, to a certain extent, to um, evangelize, and just to if you make certain kinds of things imaginable by people who make decisions, mm -hmm. then when your grant application comes in front of them, they can imagine this being a useful and worthwhile grant application in a way where, as if this, you know, it comes in and you can swear blind in the grant application that this is the best science going. This is the most amazing understanding of cognition and behavior and experience that anyone has ever produced based on the cutting edge work. And they kind of go, but I'm in my brain, right? I mean, all of their intuitions are saying, but but my brain is where it's at. I know that's where it is. So I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this money to the brain people. Mm. because no one's ever taught them to imagine something else, mm. then, you know, that's just the certain practicalities about how the circumstances work, how the, how our profession works. Mm. And I mean, the inactive approach, the ecological approach, maybe just, you know, haven't done as good a job as they might've done. I think obviously people might disagree with me on some of that. The inactive approach are almost, um, self-sabotage on this front and again partly <laughs> orders of magnitude worse yeah well not i wouldn't say orders of magnitude worse but they have a tendency <laughs> to get wordy in a way that is really aw awkward on first encounter and you know once you speak it fluently it, it gets a lot easier and you can get re you know a, there, there's a richness to the text and to the work that is incredibly valuable and and it, you know it's not to be too glib obviously there's a lot of just straightforward artificial life and, and computer modeling work and so on, which is very much in tune with the, the, per, the, the standards within that profession. Mm. But you read some of the, the core texts around the inactive approach, and this is just dense, difficult stuff that is not accessible to someone who isn't really committed. You're certainly not going to get the undergrads. Clearly, we can get the postgrads. There, you know, we continuing burgeoning field of of postgraduate and graduate work and important work. I think, and and obviously, I think it's worthwhile. But there's a there's an extent to which you just kind of have to to give the dummies guide, and we haven't done that yet. Uh, you know, we'll see um, how it goes. But the the accessibility of it is. It's not a peripheral aspect to the scientific endeavor. 
it is a fundamental aspect to the scientific right. endeavor. It's just not frequently right. explicitly recognized as such. Yeah. One ambition we had here with the course we're giving at the moment, it's an intro to embodied cognitive science or an active cognitive science course, was to, if we iterate through it a few times, um, collect the data along the way about the quest, the kinds of questions people are asking and the kind of exercises that land well, the kinds of things that we say and a student has an insight around it. Collect all that and see then can you in this participatory design process come up with a, you know, a, a textbook that is actually, because it's the curse of knowledge, right? It's I can't see what I already know. I'm teaching from my own intuitions, not where these people are already at. Mm. Um, and the metaphor of computers and so on is so ingrained that it's very hard to shift that. I often find if people, <laughs> almost like the most difficult student is, is someone with a good history in, in cognitive psychology, because, you know, often their intuitions are so set within these computational metaphors that, you know, it's a, it takes a battering ram almost for them too, right? <laughs> yeah, just use no, absolutely. For them. And not just, I mean, you're absolutely right about the computational metaphors. It is inherent in the way that we speak and in our idioms now. Mm. You see people talking about, oh, that's, I can't process this or right. I can't get this into my brain or my brain is stuck. Like there's, there, it is very much just better dance. Again, I, um, I can, I'm just a, a, a meager uh, monolingual so i don't know if to what extent it is as pervasive in other languages but certainly mm. within english but mm. also we have this um not just the 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 technical scientific aspect of it but the the moral and legalistic aspect of it and the religious one right so our dominant religions certainly in the anglophone world have a single canonical responsible agent who is the person with their soul yeah. and that has been bedding into the idioms of the language and the way in which we structure our society for centuries mm -hmm. and that's one of the things you're also trying to unseat so mm -hmm. you know it, it, there's a diversity of these views in globally it, but certainly within the anglophone world that's a that's a very deeply planted pillar that you have to try and knock over right. and it's almost like the computational metaphor was working with an existing foundation right it was like absolutely it was the it was a question of how do you account for this single hmm. responsible agent using a brain and a computer and the <laughs> excuse me the, i mean it's it, it can be surprisingly easy to unsuit that unseat the intuition when you get a, a hold of people but no one, for the most part, that will be the first time anyone's ever tried. And the the fact that, again, that isn't a, a widespread conversation. There, I mean, there are oh, pop science textbooks that kind of try to get at it in various different ways, and they just haven't caught. They haven't captured the imagination. They're certainly not widespread enough. But they're more required, really, I think. Uh, and yeah. certainly more required at a at very explicitly pitched at undergraduate level right 
the yeah the, i think there's a unseating of the metaphor that just happens in layers and continues to happen because your language keeps pulling you back into it and as you say it's mm -hmm. not just in computational metaphors it's in the very stories we tell ourselves about ourselves and a lot of that comes from uh, you know the christian tradition and so on which is all always has the individual at the center but i heard something recently that was fascinating and quite inspiring i guess uh for you know the future of thought and uh, our relationship to uh, ourselves and the world around us um was that there's something like 30 centers for process philosophy in china emerged in the last few years wow. um, which you know a focus on the philosophy of alfred north whitehead at the center <laughs> that's that's just okay that must be uh, they would have had a few um a few foundations closer to home on that one i would have thought but yeah i guess there's um, the the so this was coming from a whiteheadian and uh, maybe i misunderstood because there would be taoist and buddhist mm. kind of uh, but i did get the impression that they were very welcome to whitehead um because <clears throat> he was kind of saying how yeah. well whitehead is received in these places where he's mm. not elsewhere you know, he doesn't have to do the kind of work that we have to do <laughs> yeah. in an action to yeah. kind of convince somebody they're not a computer uh, in the same way, right? He doesn't have to convince somebody that they're not reducible to um, mm. their atoms in some fashion. And uh, that is interesting if you ally, ally that with, you know, the situation that China's in, the amount of people it's exporting with, you know, yeah. with their knowledge around the world and so on. And um yeah obviously hard to know how these things will unfold impossible to know but uh certainly mm. interesting um so yeah that's what happens when you go off track i guess you go down interesting alleys and you end up talking about politics but uh, uh, maybe i could bring you back to some more targeted concerns um the first one here and we've definitely We've kind of skipped over the sur surfaces, surface of it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but maybe with students in mind, right, in the kind of conversation mm -hmm. we're just having, who might be listening to this, because a lot of people who do listen to it are students. Um, recently in the inaction and ecological convergence and uh, complementarities paper, I think you wrote a paper for that. Am I right in saying that? Where yes, yeah. You wrote a paper about agency, right? And mm -hmm. I think it's from this paper. You say, in this paper, I suggest that underlying the confusion between the two approaches is the complexity of agency, which comes in different forms at different scales or levels of analysis. And can you introduce us a bit more specifically to what's kind of at stake here, you know, what either commission uh, position is committed to, um, and what you seem to be suggesting is some sort of reconciliation or emerging emergentist consensus here. Yeah. So the I, I guess that partly brings me back to the mention of the tangle that I talked about earlier. That there is mm. this um the I guess I, I included in the title of the paper the texture of agency. That 
um, we need to sort of take account of or provide a better articulation of. And it's there's a, a lot of work, I think, still needs to be done here. There are in, inconsistencies between the inactive and ecological accounts of agency that are, I, th I think, partly diagnostic of their sort of failure to to interact terribly effectively. Um, so, and I, I kind of made the point um, before that the um, the both approaches have this notion of reciprocality that there are the agent and the environment are mutual and reciprocal or complement, um, you know, they're, they're complementary in some way. But both accounts also argue that the other account is wrong, right? So that the, you know, the, the ecological approach um, essentially says that the, the inactive approach doesn't take adequate account of um, the environment, and it sounds, you know, sense-making sounds suspiciously like good old-fashioned constructivism uh, warmed over. And the inactivists say that the ecological psychologists are diehard realists, and that therefore the environment is given too much sway, and and the agent is um, that the role of the agent is is essentially a passive adapter to the essentially the surfaces of the environment. So while they're both make this claim that agent and environment are complementary, they are kind of both also claiming that, well, you know, some, our approach is more complementary than yours. Um, there, you know, this, uh, some approaches are more complementary than others, it would seem. And trying to kind of distinguish those or, or sort of separate those perspectives, um, I think is it's almost like they have this kind of complementary um, emphasis, and mm -hmm. again, the so I kind of pushed that the kind of more emergentist view as a means of um, as a means of trying to square that circle, as it were, or trying to find a balance. But of course, the one of the first things you'll ask if you say, "Well, I'm going to be emergentist about this," is well, emergent from what? And there we kind of have, I have to start getting very hand wavy um, because there is a, you know, th there's a, a we're, you know, it's, it's not the world, it's not the agent, it is some kind of messy, boiling, roiling stuff. And I have settled, and in the paper I kind of made this sort of first brush, and it is, it's a very first blush attempt to describe it in terms of an energetic medium. And I guess the problem there is that the word medium is already being used by both approaches in different ways. But I think it's, I still think it's probably the the best way to think about this is that there is a, um, we're looking at what are the dynamics of uh, some psychological medium. And how do structures and processes emerge within this medium? So, and here we're sort of immediately into just nothing but metaphors and analogies. 
but nevertheless i think they are potentially useful metaphors and analogies that help us get to grips with the relationship between different kinds of findings and perspectives that both the inactive and the ecological approaches um, provide that the and i would refer as well to um tatsuya kono's work uh we had him on the um uh as a, a speaker on the enso seminars in january 2022 in which he argues that you know a, a very useful way of thinking about psychology and behavior and experience is as like currents in an ocean um, yeah. and others i mean nathaniel virgo has talked about and, and others have talked about the uh you know the uh, the, the specific who talked about um the self as a vortex as well is, is there's kind of a few different um sources for the uh, yeah. for the metaphor but essentially it's this idea that if you know if you want to think about behavior or any set of activity or experience you're really looking at like a current in an ocean uh, the current is of the ocean it doesn't separate itself from it it doesn't uh, it, it is not in any way independent of it nor could you make it independent of it but it is nevertheless a a flow and understanding how flows arise some of which might be internal to the the system as we've decided to describe it you know if you look at a vortex the the, the structure of the flow of the vortex shapes the vortex itself and helps it continue but also depends on its environment in 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 various ways and in order to kind of move between these different aspects of a complex phenomenon we need to be able to kind of zoom in and zoom out at the in the right in a disciplined way right we need to be able to say well look, i'm looking at a person picking up a cup okay so what about that are we is it we're trying to understand is it just the um the motor coordination involved in uh, a reaching arm successfully grasping a cup and lifting it or are we looking at it in trying to understand the um the the raising of a toast to mm. um to to celebrate a a, a wedding for example mm. and you can't understand either of those completely without really knowing about the other and, and being able to think coherently about the other um in a, again in a fairly disciplined fashion and there are there are a few different theoretical systems and approaches that address these different scales but they don't integrate with one another very well Inter integration across scale in that way is not a standard priority for research work mm. so i mean we've talked about in the interdisciplinarity and the whole point of the intended interdisciplinarity of cognitive science was to find an integrative vocabulary by which we can start to talk about you know, behavior and experience or cognition as uh, in a coherent way in all of its aspects. But cognitive science has typically been much better at interdisciplinarity within a particular scale of description hmm. than across them. So we see the computational scientists and the cognitive psychologists and the neuroscientists being able to try to talk to one another and work together on milliseconds and tens of milliseconds or possibly as far as tens of seconds type events. But when you look at, say, anthropology and cognitive psychology, 
the integration there is much, much more limited. And, you know, if we were to extend to open an invitation to sociology or um, or even just looking at the what are sometimes referred to as the molar scale of behavior, right? So that's a term I'm drawing from um, Roger Barker and, and colleagues where you're talking about, say, having a wedding or sitting down and recording a podcast or going to church or what have you. Mm. That molar scale of behavior which is fundamentally structuring the behavior. Again, how we integrate that with our discussion of cognitive psychology is not at all apparent. And the it's a su- substantial challenge to see how we would go about doing so. And I think there's a, a massive insight into the importance of that in the case, for example. So I'm, again, I, I call myself a psychologist because I work in a psychology department. Um, I sometimes I get fancy and call myself a cognitive scientist. Most of the people I work with think I'm a philosopher because I don't do enough data collection. Philosophers would never accept me as a uh, as a philosopher who's way too broad brush in the way that I approach concepts. But if I ostensibly I'm a psychologist, and if I wanted to. You know, so I'm a, I'm a scientist of behavior, right? One of the things I should be able to do is predict behavior. If I don't want to predict any given human being's behavior and I had a, could pick only one piece of information about them, then I can get 95, I can get a really good approximation of their behavior by asking what behavior setting they're in, right? If I know what behavior setting they're in, that is the single most useful piece of information uh, in terms of the prediction of behavior that I could possibly have and it's nothing to do with the person in question. It's not their intelligence. It's nothing to do with their personality profile. It's not how good their working memory works. None of that is predictive of behavior to the extent that a behavior setting is. And I mean, if you give me a role within that behavior setting, then I will nail 95% of their behavior. And the, like it's, that is sort of bespeaks the extent to which Behavior is not something that emanates out of us, but flows through us. And Barker and Scoggin, who, um, so Phil Scoggin wrote a a kind of a a revisiting and an updating of behavior settings theory in 1989. Um, They explicitly talk about people in this way, that human beings as the medium of a behavior setting. And the... the, um, Human beings, okay, you messed me up there. So human beings as the medium of the setting and of the, the other of way Of the around. setting, yeah, yeah. So because um, the medium, so drawing, they're drawing from, um, oh, his name's jumped out of my head now because um, Kafka, is it Kafka? Um, uh, there's a, a, a classic paper called Thing and Medium. Heider, Fritz Heider, sorry. The... Um, so Heider has a, a classic paper called Thing and Medium and looks at the distinction, what's the distinction between a thing and its medium? And the idea is a medium is something which um, has no structure of its own, will just accept passively, as it were, the structure of things that pass through it. And this is one of, it's crucial to the capacity of the air to um, enable sight and hearing, for example, because air is transparent, it, it doesn't affect it, it allows the structuring of light and air. And um, because it's a fluid, it allows the the, um, the kind of pressure structuring that um, 
is required for us to be able to perceive sound. And a behavior setting requires human beings to be sufficiently to sort of just fit themselves into what the setting requires. And so, and, you know, you, you put someone in a setting and if they're a competent inhabitant of that setting, their behavior will flow to adapt to the setting. And so the setting is enacted through the medium of people's behavior. Um, and, but it's also true that, so the, um, and this is a, a, um, an analogy from Scoggin is that you, you take a thing and one thing is kind of rigid. It has its own structure and it won't be easily restructured by its encounters with it, with the environment around it. That's one of the things that characterizes it as a thing, as opposed to a medium, but you put lots of things together and the lots of things can now start to act as a medium. So, um, if you think of a single Lego brick, then it's just a brick. But you, if you have 50 Lego bricks, now 50 Lego bricks is something you can work with. It can take on, the 50 bricks can take on a number of different possible structures. And if you have 5,000 Lego bricks, then now you have a much richer medium within which to work. And a much richer set of structures that can possibly arise and or be brought into being. And the same goes for behavior and experience right the um again for for scoggin it was specifically in terms of well how do you produce a behavior setting and then what characteristics of the of the the activity of that behavior setting can you characterize it you know if you've only one or two people then the settings you know a lot of settings would be in trouble with only two people because they they might have more several roles to play but if you have a dozen people then it's a resilient setting because if one person drops out another person can take their place and there there's a a way in which all of the activity around can be sort of um more readily uh, encompassed and and supported and enacted so understanding how that kind of level of activity and that's the molar structuring of activity can interact with the and shape the um the more micro aspects of activity um and then the broader you know the the well, again getting back up to the the social and political ways because like we organize um human behavior partly through social and political means right housing policies and zoning policies in cities determine what behavior settings are allowed to be put where and therefore, the ease with which you can move from one setting to another, or the speed with which you can move from one setting to another. Um, there's a kind of lovely um, description of architecture or la landscaping as a a means of speeding up or slowing down a landscape. Right, urban design, sorry, as a means of accelerating or decelerating a landscape. Um, and so there are these kind of these are you know political and sociological decisions that affect the, the behavior setting scale and then similarly the behavior setting scale affects the um the individual scale and of course the the, the pressure goes the other way because hungry people will behave differently in a setting and will force changes in a setting that you know so it's not just it's not this one-way um action so trying to understand that interscale dynamic and have a coherent and disciplined vocabulary for discussing it and being able to move up and down the scale because you know any given individual piece of research can't encompass all of it at the same time but if we can move up and down it and be aware conscious of which scale we're working at at a time and therefore how it might relate to other scales is is a kind of an important theoretical task that 
I think is now being undertaken. I think there are centers that are explicitly examining these kinds of things, but it's a relatively recent development. Yeah, that was lovely. I guess Sorry, uh, that was very long. No, it was a great introduction to your ideas there and some of the issues that are at play. Um, lots of things we could talk about, I think, stemming from this, but one thing I just want to get clear, right? So... <laughs> In your view, it's uh, so, so one theory I've come across recently is um, when thinking about technology from an active standpoint is the work of post-phenomenological phenomenological thinkers like Peter Paul Verbeek and he has a notion of mediation theory um, and he thinks about any technology as a mediating, say, capacity or it has a mediating capacity, right? And it's in this kind of constitutive relationship, both with the world and the person. So we have, in his language, tools and technologies as mediums of sorts. Um, in your language, uh, both persons and environments as mediums of sorts. <clears throat> Does there need to be some like conceptual hygiene brought in here just to differentiate what we mean by a medium then? Because I I, think, I, I can yeah, agree I mean, that that everything is mediating in some way. Yeah, it's media all the way down um, <laughs> and, and all the way up. Um, but yeah, absolutely about the conceptual hygiene. I that's that's you know, it's kind of important work. Um, at least I think it's important because I'm trying to do some of it. Um, you know, watch this space, as it were. Okay, um, okay. So we'll uh, we'll sort of see how that comes out. But yeah, I mean, it is. I think it's a a term that is valuable, and therefore I think we should use it more. But uh, there, at the moment, it's not disciplined, and therefore we need to discipline it. Right. Um, but it is. Um, and I think it's valuable because it's a way of of just trying to get us to that kind of more emergentist view that means we're less likely to make the kinds of primacy errors that the inactive approach and the ecological approach both, both accuse each other of. Mm. You know, the ecological approach saying, well, you're making the agency primary um, in a way that undermines our understanding of the environment. And, and the inactivist saying, well, you ecological people make the environment primary in a way that understands our understanding of the agent. And yeah um yeah yeah i think there's a gather in the medium of emergentism and we can all get along (laughs) yeah so many things are coming to mind here you know like useful philosophical frameworks and you know people who've been thinking in the past and so on but one thing that maybe might be fun to talk about uh, because it was part of the remit of this podcast from the start was well, I'm interested to hear your thoughts, really. Um, but when we think about a medium, we think about something that's, say, deformable, reformable, uh, available to be shaped and modulated and manipulated. And in a way, there's a sense of agency to the medium as well, right? It's going to do what it's going to do. So mm-hmm. maybe we escape... Uh, you know, 
strict notions of controlling and so on when we talk about manipulation but maybe modulation is a better term here but yeah do, do you because design for me is a kind of you know uh, as you know a kind of something i kind of hang my philosophizing off a little bit and you know try and work stuff back into that uh, i suppose practical endeavor and yeah, do you have any thoughts here about the relationship between medium and design? I know you've written recently that um, both art and technological innovation reshape the standard stable habits in a given form of life. And you actually put it really nicely here. I think you said, by building bridges between peaks or digging beneath them, forms of activity that would have been inaccessible, whether through physical or normative barriers, are made, avail made available. Having done so, the dynamic landscape is reshaped in its entirety, like a tensegrity system finding a new equilibrium. Art and innovation are therefore inherently, inherently radical enterprises seeking to overcome stabilities imposed by tradition or, the, or, or other cultural inertia and must be undertaken in full knowledge of that mode of operation and the ethical demands that are placed upon us to consider what peaks in the landscape of our form of life need flattening and what ruts need digging digging it seems here there's like emerging from an action ecological psychology design and so on this new vocabulary that actually has the power maybe to have this scalability that you're getting at right because we can talk about the modulation of the medium in a very local sense mm -hmm. and we can bring to it practices of design we can also t maybe talk about it at a personal sense and bring to it talking about a relation and so on and the scalability kind of holds across right and and then the promise of that maybe the analogy is a bit i don't know too strong or naive here but it's it's almost like if we're concerned with making change and we don't have the same vo vocabulary for doing that it's going to be very difficult if we do, maybe it makes things easier, but that could also be scary, right? That's not necessarily a good thing. Mm -hmm. So anything in any any of what I've said there, yeah, about the intersection of medium and design. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I mean, design is, is not an area that I, I can speak with any confidence in, but I guess one of the ways I've often parsed design is as applied consciousness studies. Mm. and to that extent all of the cognitive science of consciousness applies to design and vice versa what i think is interesting is that design has been more explicitly articulated at different scales in a way that consciousness studies has not most likely because of these kind of age-old intuitions that we've talked about already and there are, and this is something, so for, for example, I think Fred Cummins's work on collectivity is, is perhaps some of the most groundbreaking and important work in this aspect, that our consciousness at any given moment is not a continuing process that, it, you know, is just this, like this um, thread moving forward at the same, uh, you know, one constant resolution, one second per second, ticking onwards, right. but right. rather this kind of layer of, broad um sort of tidal background and then more specific individual events within that tidal background and so on so the understanding the the scales of consciousness 
mm. are and I again it's kind of that phrase is, is always a little bit wary because scales of consciousness people tend to think of as dimmer switch I'm either less conscious or more conscious but in fact it's more that I am I'm conscious of this at a background level at like the atmosphere in the room or the I mean as we discuss this there's a kind of a global tension because of the war that's broken out you know the invasion um by putin and russia of ukraine and that's just put everyone on um in, you know in, to, into a sort of a higher level of tension combined with yes. two years of uh two years plus of pandemic um and that's kind of an, a something that's, that's genuinely there as part of our consciousness that i think you know just because it's it's broadly applicable doesn't mean it goes away as a an influential factor um when trying mm -hmm. to describe an individual person's experience and so you kind of layer then on top of that well you know i might have um long-term personal issues of various kinds or we all have long-term personal projects going on um and maybe short-term immediate demands and so on up to right now i need a drink the second i need to reach for my cup and at any given moment, the you know what we're conscious of is some integration of all of those things, and the fact that some of them change faster than others doesn't mean that those slower, less specific, or more general aspects are not nevertheless present and important. Mm. Um, design explicitly targets certain scales. You know, you have design, urban design, and then you write all the way down to graphic design of kind of this immediate. Well, what are you doing looking at this thing? And the extent to which design has been disciplined and works well at those various scales is a, possibly an opportunity for us to say, well, how do we then do a, a consciousness studies at that scale? Um, you know, what works at that scale in terms of design? That tells us something about what that scale of consciousness is and how it works. Um, what works at, you know, at, and you know that the again you might talk about um urban design and zoning policies you might talk about um interior design and behavior settings we might talk at graphic design and um individual behavior sort of momentary behavior but there are um important ways in which there's a i think a potential useful complementarity of cognitive science and design in that way and the extent to which as well design has as again as an explicit aim is the the structuring and the facilitation of certain kinds of behavior and sometimes the explicit um removal or control of other kinds of behavior then you know the the ethical dimensions of that are vital and unavoidable mm -hmm. and the the extent to which even being aware of it is a radical move, you know, making yourself aware of what, how your society works and what kinds of um, systems of control exist within your community or your society. That is a, it's a radically empowering and dangerous kind of knowledge. And I think it's the extent again, to which the, the inactive and ecological perspectives can encourage that kind of awareness makes them um ethically engaged and we you know we're i think we're better scientists when we are that ethically engaged yeah yeah 
Yeah, the, I mean, the, if what you come to at the end there is precisely the kind of case I've made for introducing an action to design because it's you know it, it provides this relationality that once you sensitize yourself to the fact that the conditions you provide also then provide the conditions for other people and so on. I do think just an emerging sense of care accompanies that, right? Even if if you start out just by, well, my behavior is kind of a reflection of my environment. Well, maybe I should care more about my environment, right? And then the kind of concentric circles expand a little from that, right? Because once you acknowledge that, you you have to acknowledge the the ways in which those things um, <clears throat> start to encompass each other. Mm. And uh, also it gives you opportunities for richness that you might overlook. You know, the the when we talk about, for example, addressing systemic prejudice, whether it's misogyny and and uh, or racism or or similar, the there's a, almost like a you know, insofar as there's any kind of resistance, there's this idea that you're taking my world from me, right? You're 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 undermining me in some way. Uh, but in fact, making yourself sensitive to these issues enriches your world. You're able to make more distinctions than you were before, and therefore you're able to take more finer-grained actions before. You literally become capable of a wider range of actions when you mm-hmm. make finer-grained discriminations. And the, the, those sensitivities enrich and empower you, even if you're in the kind of privileged position I am, right? So white, cishet, male, anglophone. Um, but the my world is the better and richer for being sensitive to and aware of a much wider array of discriminations than the kind of um, you know white supremacist patriarchy in which I have spent an awful lot of my life. So the um, there is genuine riches and value to be achieved through that kind of sensitivity. Um, it's not all to be done purely in an altruistic fashion. Um, though that's not me trying to undermine altruistic motivation. Sure, sure. And I think, yeah, part of the challenge for that for people at the outset or, you know, if you start to sensitize yourself in those ways is uh, some sense of handing over control, maybe. Right? Once, once you acknowledge that you're not in control because you're this medium through which so many forces um, kind of flow and interact and intersect and so on. Uh, at the outset, that can feel like, well, I, I guess I imagine, uh, you know, I probably thought in this fashion for so long at this point that I forget exactly what it feels like, but um, the sense that there's this, you know, murky uh, animating forces that are living through you and that you don't have some uh, agency over entire agency over and of course you know the the handing over of the surrendering the surrendering to in the way that you were talking about it helps you develop a new set of sensitivities and cares and agencies and new ways of i guess uh, if it's not control of maybe dancing with or you know participating with or yeah i mean very much the although i guess i you know 
the argument would be that it, you're not losing control or giving up control. You're giving up the delusion of control and <laughs> the, the delusion of precise um, pre precise control. The um, insofar as, you know, for example, there are now again, there, there are different philosophies and there's, there's different um, techniques. But in many martial arts, the there's a kind of a, a softening or a, an acceptance of the incoming power of the other. Um, and that's not something that you are surrendering to the other. It's precisely the, mm. the sort of softening and making yourself pliable is a way of making yourself sensitive to the other so that you can maintain control of the situation, right? So um, mm. if you're not going to massively directly overpower the person um, or change their movement, then you can... Um, the 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 be, making yourself aware of the complexity and the richness of it okay. is a means of actually um in an extent giving yourself uh, more control but again we're partly into well what else what are you trying to do here um yeah. it's like the difference between riding a motorcycle and riding a, a horse um mm. you know you can they can both get you around but if you if you collaborate with a horse you know, you have to collaborate with a horse essentially you know this is the the um if you're trying to just sort of steer it like it was a bike, you're going to fail miserably in getting done what you want to get done. Yeah. Yeah, the design theorist Tony Fry, I think, kind of captures this general sensitivity with the notion of design intelligence, you know, sensitizing yourself to the degree to which your socio-material environment constrains and shapes you, and you do that for others and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and for him, and I... I tend to agree with him. I haven't studied him enough to know the ins and outs, so maybe there's points of divergence. But you know, for him, this would be something like an essential skill. You know, something that you could even or would even teach to children, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's so general in a way, and it starts to encompass so much um, that there does seem like there could be a kind of shared vocabulary there that would be very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe a few quick questions. I was hoping, I was thinking, <laughs> I was, uh, anticipating that I might start adding in to these podcasts, a section on craft, you know, the craft of research and so on. Okay. And I've, I'm just bringing this on you. So I don't know how you feel about that. Um, we can include something about it. We can. Yeah, I'm, tell me I'm happy to talk about it. I, I, as I guess, as I've already explained, I'm not good at the the, the methodology bit. Um, the the process of research for me is um, substantially conversational, and and then you know uh, being yeah. very frustrated at what gets written on a page. But well, even that is interesting because I, I think first there's a lot of reasons I think the notion of craft and research is interesting, but for me. Um, it was a real grounding in academic life. So I kind of uh, have some warmth and fuzziness towards it because my own background was very much in making things, you know, uh, sculpture, bits of art, um, furniture, whatever, and, and music and so on. And <clears throat> always having the sense that within that there's, tradition that you can wedge yourself to and learn from and there's some set of skills that you know if you refine to a certain extent 
you'll be able to, you know, progress more easily. And I think when I encountered academia, you know, I'm the first in my family kind of thing to first generation scholar or whatever to um, come through university to the extent that I have. Um, it was very bewildering. And <laughs> at some point I I could acknowledge for myself the kind of craft framing and then overlay it on what I was doing in academia and all of a sudden things started to kind of click into place. Um, so I'm interested from that point of view, but also, um, you know, I think a lot of the politics of what we do and are involved in start to surface when we think about um, our craft and our abilities to do it, to do it well, to do it under constraints and pressures that maybe hinder it in some way. Um, <clears throat> so I think it might be an interesting exploration from a cognitive scientific perspective for a number of reasons, right? Mm -hmm. But also, <laughs> finally, I just think it's useful to students uh, and students are definitely one of the uh, demographics who are listening here. So it's interesting to hear you say straight off what you said, right? Like, the methodologies, the scientific methodologies, the experimentation is not such a big part of your work. And is that true to the kind of integrity, right? You've no PhD students doing experimental work at this point or? Um, no, well, actually not at the moment, but no, I, I mean, I have had PhD students go through and do experimental work. And obviously I supervise experimental work on a sort of an annual basis on um, at the undergraduate level. And so I have some engagement with the the process of empirical data collection there, but the certainly my own activities are primarily verbal, uh, whether spoken or written. And so mm. the the craft such as it is of, of what I do and my professional activity is uh, trying to work through the uh, uh it's usually a piece of writing i mean i'm in a, a fairly teaching focused institution so i have a lot of a sort of practice just around my teaching and around different techniques of um of sort of teaching and, and facilitation of learning um so i've kind of interests and um practices there in the field of problem-based learning um which would be a essentially a, a move away from didactic um, lecturing mm. and so on. And principally driven by, I mean, partly driven by good old school cognitive psychology, to be fair to it, um, that is, it was, you know, reading around aspects of the development of expertise and so on that led me to shift the way I teach and move away from didactic teaching the but the it you know it very much in um has been informed by both the inactive approach more generally and also the the work of Lave and Wegner in particular who are anthropologists who looked at how uh, learning works in real world settings right how do people in a community learn to be part of that community and the ways in which a community is structured. So the, crucial to their notion is the, there's this notion of um, legitimate peripheral participation. That is, when you're a newcomer, um, so the, the 
any community is essentially a process of digestion, um, gradually turning newcomers into old timers. Um, and the any community has these peripheral roles to play that a newcomer needs almost no competence in order to successfully engage in, but in doing so, they're nevertheless doing something that genuinely matters to the community. Um, and that might be a profession. So they, their focus particularly was on looking at how apprentice tailors become master tailors, but the, the, the dynamic is fairly generic. And one of the issues around within pedagogy, um, in so the, the institution where I work is a, has a substantial um, commitment to professional preparation of teachers. And there's lots mm. of discussion of what's called the hidden curriculum, which is what children actually learn at school, right? So right. you go into school to learn the curriculum, but then there's the hidden curriculum, and that's the stuff that kids actually pick up. And it's the it's we call it organizational culture, right? How does a person learn to be a member of a particular organization or, or behave in the way that's appropriate to that organization? There's the set of explicit policies, and there's what people do. And the the hidden curriculum is essentially one way of talking about this um community of practice idea that you know kids will do what they're let to or what they're encouraged to do not what they're told to do so what is it that their role in the school actually is they'll fit into that pretty well and if they don't like it they'll act out in various ways and um similarly if i want researchers you know if, if i want research capable graduates to come out of my modules then I can talk at them and you know use the old information transfer notion, or as I call it, the baby burn model, right? Where I vomit pre-digested information into them and they kind of stare with their um, eyes and brains wide open and just accept the the information. Um, and it's it's appalling, right? So if I if I teach cog I I teach cognitive psychology two and and some cognitive psychology one modules. So this is kind of introductory and, and uh, supposedly introductory and advanced material, but they're two years apart in the program. Um, in Cognitive Psychology 2, I'll ask them, well, what are the topics we covered in Cognitive 1? And they mm. can't name the topics, let alone work through the research, right? Yeah, so right. Um, whereas if I give them roles to play and engage them in practice that is research-informed and research-relevant, and um, so I don't think just in terms of telling them what cognitive psychology is and what the theories are, but thinking, well, what do psychologists do and how do we do it and give them tasks to do that fit those roles that they're capable of and then increase the the centrality and the the depth of those tasks, then it just, it just transforms the way I teach. I mean, you still need to present a lot of material in a digestible manner for them because they need to be able to cope with it. But you, I kind of then leave it out in a way, you know, it's it's up online as videos and so on, so as that they go to it when they need it. It's not just taught at them at particular times. And then I give them reasons to go need it. Um, so as, as kind of so one colleague put it, um, he says, you can uh, lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. But you can make them thirsty. Um, <laughs> and so it, it's the, that kind of um, very good. that kind of practice is um, is is what you're, I guess is 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 what's informing my practice at present. You know? Yeah, I just had the thought there that you know humor should be a part of this teaching process because no doubt that is 
the quote that I will remember from this conversation. With, I, without question, I mean, there's an entire movement here. I, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's international, um, but they call it Bright Club, which is stand-up science. Um, and it's it's based on this notion that if you can make people laugh, you are much more likely to allow a person to change their mind if mm. they're doing it while they're laughing at it or laughing with it even. Um, oh, rather than if they're just again paying attention to it it's why the funny popular science books are the the ones that get people thinking and you know there's um there's a kind of a we just have to get over this or, or properly recognize that we're dealing with human beings all the time right we're dealing with people and yeah. whether they're students or other researchers or you know we want to pretend that this scientific community is a the kind of this collection of um disciplined yeah, yeah. haughty um idealist kind of quasi gods you know some some kind of oracles or or um yeah. i don't know kind of creatures of of universal nature or something but just people and you know um people learn in relationships they they learn and they learn when they're having fun and um and that's not similarly as you know we don't um, you know, the, in, an emergentist or an active approach doesn't lead to some silly, um, no holes barred relativism. You can just pick whatever truth you want, right? That that just doesn't follow. Um, similarly, the idea that oh, you just let people do anything that they want and go be silly and crazy, and they'll learn anything you need them to learn. That's not how it works either. It's right. it's about finding the right kind of balance. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, America, you know, I'm glad I cracked open the craft question, but we don't have much time, so I, I will start winding it down. But um, maybe you know, sometime in the future, again, we can pick up this conversation and uh, get to some of the stuff we didn't talk about. Um, because I, I I have a load of notes here that we just never even got to. But uh, that's it's a good sign, I think, generally. Um, Finger, fingers crossed. We just like, well, what was that twenty minute tirade in the middle? Could we just edited that bit out? But anyway. <laughs> Well, I'll send it on to you, and if you want to edit anything out, you're, you're, you can get back to me. But I, it was all perfectly coherent and, and fascinating and interesting to me, so um, I doubt there's any editing needed. Um, so do you want to give people contact details if... Um, yeah, if they want um, to reach out to you? Well, they, I'm on Twitter at Merit McGann, and... Uh, you can generally get me at marrick.mcgann at mic.ul.ie. That's my uh, professional email address. Um, I'm at gmail.com as well, if people prefer there. Um, the Yeah, those I mean, those are the the best ways to, to get in touch. But I'm always happy to chat. Yeah, fantastic. Great having you on, Marek, and uh, we'll chat again. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Marek. Bye-bye. Thank you.